holy fuck, I'm looking at pictures of young Hercules. <laughs> what is happening with his hair? He looks like Nicolas Cage! This This podcast podcast is being presented presented in IMAX, 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 IMAX. No, it's not. Nothing is. We're in hell. Welcome to another episode (laughs) of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that politely disagrees to agree, and the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, (laughs) you are melting in Southern California. That's right. I threw you off with my intro. I could tell. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's real warm here. Uh, and you, Cassidy Robinson, are similarly going through some heat issues, recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes, I'm recording now from my new apartment. I just moved over the weekend. Oh. And, uh, I'm here at my desk and I, I just started work. I got a work at home position and they've been training for that, so they gave me equipment to use. Nice. So I have my computer that I'm doing the podcast on, the one I've always done the podcast on, sitting in front of two monitors from my work computer. So it is like a clutter of equipment and microphones and two keyboards, two mice. It's like a, a zoo of electronics in front of me right now. Look at you, big dick Cassidy, with your... Uh-huh. Electronics. I guess I could pretend I'm Batman with like multiple monitors. I've had multiple monitors for a few jobs now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's nice. Yeah, yeah. Hey, going back to that. So Batman. Mm-hmm. Every time we ever see the Batcave, yeah, you, there's multiple monitors, the tube television style because the Batman well, universe takes place in sort of a timeless, you know, sci-fi universe. It depends. The Nolan movies, they're like straight up like... Yeah, those are like LCD screens. Yeah, they're like... uh, I mean, and Lucius Fox's like uh, echolocation computer is is real snazzy. Sure, yeah. So... Yeah, what's your point? What (laughs) is he monitoring? Does Batman have... I mean, let's discount the Lucius Fox... Like NSA spying okay. subtext, all right, um, from the Nolan movies. Uh-huh. Uh, in the regular Batman universe, or in the comics, or in the cartoon, or whatever, does he have like little bat cameras all over the city that are mon- that he's monitoring, or is that like the cameras to to the mansion in case somebody walks in? First of all, I think we should just call this what it is and. And we should officially rebrand this as a Batman podcast that occasionally <laughs> talks about movies, uh, because this is basically a Batman podcast at this point. It, it comes up a lot. It does come up a lot. It comes up on this podcast more than Horses and Ghosts comes up on My Brother, My Brother, and Me. <laughs> With you, shit, that's a lot. Uh, okay, so we got to break this shit down, because like, if we're talking BTAS... Batman the Animated Series, 
it uh-huh. was just kind of an unwieldy large monitor, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like that. That was totally unnecessary to fill up this giant cave. It was just like sort of a big, big screen. Yeah. If we're it talking, also looked like maybe his only lighting source, though. That's true. I guess, but I mean. <laughs> Man, that screen resolution in the fucking 90s must have been a nightmare. Uh, Just, like, what is he even looking at? It's just going to be a big blur. Um, Oh, fuck, I hear some sirens! Okay, I didn't know if that was coming from you or me. I thought maybe we uh, went too far. We were talking about something where it shouldn't be. Well, you did mention the NSA, so I'm sure they're uh, (laughs) monitoring this now. Anyway... Uh, but like, I think that was just kind of an eighties, nineties thing because Ugh. like the size of your TV was such a status symbol. Like, so I think it was like, a uh, well, he's obviously affluent because he can have multiple monitors. I don't think it went much further than that. I, I don't think he has back cameras. I think that would make a lot of sense. Um, but like a closed circuit full city Batman monitoring system. I that's really unwieldy. I think it's more like he just has a TV turned every station to monitor for like news alerts. Fair enough. Fair enough. That, Al- that makes sense. Google alert wasn't a thing yet, so you know, he's just kinda no. kinda But the real question is, what was Shredder doing with his wall of TVs? Oh well those are just TVs that the Foot Clan stole and stacked. Yeah, but he had a bunch of them still. Like, <laughs> like he was—they were stealing them. lots of TVs, but like a lot. But I don't know what they were doing with them. But they—it was kind of a black market thing, right? All right. On this episode, believe it or not, we are going to talk about movies. We're going to talk about the direct-to-streaming film *An American Pickle*, starring Seth Rogen and Seth Rogen. Uh, that was released recently on HBO Max. Um, and, uh, for the streaming homework, you assigned me the, uh, I guess modern classic of sorts, um, the notebook that neither of us had actually seen before. So mm-hmm. we'll be talking about that. Um, there are a couple things we're going to do before that. Uh, first of all, I posted a survey to the audience a week or so ago. Uh, the question that I posed to the audience, a simple one, what is your favorite documentary? Oh, that's right. And I should have an answer for this. Well, you can think about it while I'm reading the others. From uh, Brianna Allen, she says, Oof, this is hard. I love documentaries. The one that immediately pops into mind is Dear Zachary. And keep that name in your head because a friend of the podcast, Ashley, has been wanting us to review that for a long time. I don't know if it's on Netflix right now anymore. But... Hmm. That's been a thing for a while, and I keep forgetting. It's not my favorite in a positive way. It is beautifully produced in one of the most heart-shattering stories I've ever heard. All right. Um, Alex? The interesting thing about documentaries is they are literally, like, like they are such a product of their time. Um, Yeah. You you know, like, like I I feel like documentaries don't, they age differently than fiction. Yes and no. I think some can transcend it, and we'll see if maybe something like that comes well, up. Well, and but I, I think that, if nothing else, like, they are, 
not not like they're bad after time because you know there's still a time capsule mm-hmm. for the era they were produced in but like especially when we have like um you know like take a michael moore documentary sure right uh, uh like fahrenheit 451 or fahrenheit 911 um, yeah right you know what i mean like that was such a product of its time well any of those I, kind of like a rip from the headlines yeah. um, polemics are so going to be no like that. But there's a different styles of documentary. like that would play now. Like, if you watched mm-hmm. Fahrenheit 9-11 now, you're going to be watching it very differently than if, if you had seen yeah. it when it first came. It's now a historical piece. Yeah, which I, yeah. Just, I just think that's an interesting thing, the way document... I, I don't know. This... Sure. This, this um, Alex content. says you can cut all this. <laughs> Alex says the fog of war by Errol Morris. But yeah, the fog of war by Errol Morris. Uh, uh, Martin underneath him says uh, most of my favorite documentaries are from Errol Morris. And he's an interesting documentarian because he's he's done polemics. He's done very topical, um, you know, of the moment kind of stuff. He's also done kind of more mm-hmm. um, impressionistic, art, artsy sort of documentaries that are, have nothing to do with any one particular topic, but are more like tone pieces. And he's also done like, you know, with, with the film Tabloid, I think he kind of sort of created like the the Tiger King style documentary that's really popular right now. Oh, Okay. Uh, Todd Flatland says Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Never bad time to watch it. It's basically a spa day in film form. That's another type of documentary that's out there is, uh, I guess, sort of like the travel log style documentary where it's more about just taking the audience to a place they would normally never be able to go or visit or experience. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like I watch more documentary like series or mini series than I do documentary movies. Well, that's most people now. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I, I think popular I think uh, the popularity of documentary has gone up significantly with streaming. Because there's once upon a time Netflix all it really had the rights to acquire were direct to DVD B movies and a shit ton mm. of documentaries. Also I think there's there's something about like uh not I think it's a lot harder to get an audience in theaters um to see a documentary like you know paying uh you know 10 15 dollars a ticket right to, you know to go see a, a documentary because I mean and and maybe this will come up but uh generally speaking documentaries aren't the same type of fun as like a normal movie is um, and so I think I think that it's a lot easier to watch a documentary in the comfort of your own home. True. Yeah, I think people feel more inclined to watch a documentary from home than they do on the big screen because they've already been trained to some regard because of docu-series or for reality TV and things like that. It just kind of like their brain already, already makes that association. And and it's less of a gamble because they're 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 not risking wasting you know money they're they're only risking their time um, sure 
which I think more people like documentaries than realize it. I, I just think it's, I, I think there's this weird thing with documentaries that, uh, it, when we're talking movies, they, they get kind of, uh, it's easy for people to dismiss them as like boring because they're not. <laughs> right. I think they stigmatize it in thinking that they're like purely educational because they probably, mm-hmm. the first documentaries they ever saw was in school. Um, yeah. uh, but I, th- I do think that's changing because more and more I hear like quote unquote normal people say, I love documentaries, which is not something people used to say even 10 years ago. Um, yeah, okay. Sure. And then Todd also wanted to say on uh, Twitter, he replied again, said his wife, Christy, um, who isn't on Twitter said it's a tie between who killed the electric car and the parking lot movie. I've heard of who killed the, the electric car, but I haven't seen the parking lot movie. Uh, old high school buddy of ours, Michael Rower, says if mockumentaries count, then it's Spinal Tap. No, it doesn't. Sorry. That's not a documentary. It's kind of like one. <laughs> um, if not, then The Battle of Marja, which I don't know. Hmm. I don't know that one either. Thomas Severs says... I don't know if this counts, but Ken Burns baseball. Yes, all Ken Burns counts, even though they're like premiered on PBS and usually split into multiple days. Um, those are documentaries. Yeah, uh, I mean, and some of the best. Definitely like a uh, pioneer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we got another one from Martin here. Uh, another Errol Morris, um, Mr. Death, which I believe is about, isn't that about uh, Dr. Gavorkian? No. Oh, I don't I don't know. No, I'm wrong. The Rise and Fall of Fred A. Lucher Jr. I don't either. I haven't seen that one. And then uh, my friend Andy says, Impossible. But I guess I'll go with one I've returned to frequently over the years for its beauty, artistry, and subtle complexity, which is uh, The Gleaners and I from Agnes Varda. Uh, she was a oh. French New Wave person um who's made both uh uh documentaries and and um narrative films so what are some of your favorites does anything come to mind um and we're talking only movies here right not docuseries yeah i really like i i have a tendency to like the lighter fare in of documentaries because i sure i get i get pretty um I'm pretty susceptible to them. Um, so, you know, the, the ones that are meant to agitate you really, you know, they piss me off. Uh, yeah. uh, like like Blackfish, I still have never been to SeaWorld since, we, since I've lived in San Diego because of that movie. I tend to enjoy the lighter fare a little bit more. Um, I think King of Kong is such a good comedy yeah. um, that it like, it feels like a mockumentary. It's, it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really enjoyed uh, project Grizzly um, uh, about the guy who wanted to build a, he wants to build a bear proof suit. <laughs> oh, um, all right, right, right. I was confusing that with Grizzly Man, the uh, Werner Herzog documentary. I I also enjoyed Grizzly Man. I actually thought yeah. it was that was pretty good too. This one is is a lot sillier. Have you? I didn't we watch it in film class together? 
Um, um, no, that that was in a film class that you took with uh, Richard, the old oh, co-host. Okay. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's pretty fun. In fact, uh, I'm dog earing that for a future streaming homework because it's <laughs> it's it's a good time. Um, but yeah, it's about a guy who is like he wants to build a bear proof suit. It's, it's pretty entertaining. Um, and, but it's, it's also, you know, it's still like a really good movie. It's not as jackass as it sounds. Um, although there is some elements of that Would the, okay, here's a question. Does some, and I haven't actually seen these movies. It's just stream of consciousness thought. Uh, Uh would you count the jackass movies as documentaries? That's interesting. Um, yes. Okay. They're definitely adjacent. Yeah, because it's not. I mean, they they put thought and stuff into their pranks, but the like the found footage and the yeah the real reactions of people. I, I but that's the thing. That's they're, it's almost more related to found footage or not found footage, but um, hidden camera show stuff. Like, yeah. uh, and prank shows and stuff like that than it but, is, than it is documenting a specific story. I think maybe for something to be considered a documentary, there needs to be something approaching narrative. But then that's not exactly true either, because some of the, <laughs> some of that Errol Morris stuff is very, very pastoral. And like I said, uh, has very little like through line. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry, not to go too much on a tangent about that. I just, I thought that was a uh, weird thought. So yeah, I, guess- I mean, it's kind of funny. A lot of the questions that come up when people talk about this is, does this count? Because, yeah. um, in the days of post reality television and everything like that, everything is kind of genealogically connected to documentary in some way or another now. Um, whether yeah, or not totally. it is strictly in the, you know, with the intention of following that format. Yeah. And then I have, I have one more, one more, um, that is one. I don't think a lot of people have seen, um, this takes me back to comedy project days. There was a documentary that it was, uh, back in the day, it was sort of an initiation into my old comedy group. Um, and it's called the aristocrats. And it's a documentary about uh, what was, for a long time, uh, it was just a a joke comedians told to other comedians. Um, And it it was just sort of a a verbal rite of passage kind of thing. Um, And uh, they made a documentary about it. And it's, it's, the joke is, it's intentionally filthy. um, um, But the joke itself takes on this life of its own is just comedians trying to gross each other out. It's just literally you're coming up with the most heinous shit you can think of. Um, I don't know how well this documentary's aged because I haven't <laughs> watched it in a long time. Um, I just, that one has always had like a weird soft spot in my heart because of the, the connection I had to it. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, there's some stuff that's like very insular within the comedy world that I feel pretty iced out of. That documentary is one of them. Um, have you seen it? Yeah, I have. All right. (laughs) 
so I was thinking about this. I, I've already mentioned a lot of them um, that I that I like. Uh, there's been a lot of really great ones recently. Um, I think uh, the 13th um, by uh, Eva DuVernay is brilliant. It's really, really good. And I think uh, should be taught in 11th grade high school. Um, just so that people have like a firm understanding of like how our how fucked up our government is and how systemic racism works and how it's tied into industry and how the prison industrial complex is a continuation of Jim Crow and slavery. And it's just really, really, really well laid out. And it's by far my favorite thing Ava DuVernay has done. Um, so really like that documentary. Uh, as far as Errol Morris goes, uh, he did one in 97 called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. That's one that I was talking about that doesn't really have like a one narrative. It follows a few different kind of people who have these strange obsessions or these uh, different kind of life paths. Like some one guy does like topiary uh, sculptures and, and another person is like obsessed with robots. And and then it just kind of it's more just a, a character study than it is anything else. But it's I think it's probably my favorite documentary of his that I've seen. Um, of course, a lot of people talk about the Thin Blue Line, which actually got a person off of death row. Um, uh, it ages a little. I think it feels very like early 90s HBO, but it's, uh, it's interesting for that, for that aspect of it alone. Uh, and then, of course, a lot of the documentaries I've seen are music related, um, given that's my other obsession. And so I'm, I'm a huge fan of Penelope Spheris' The Decline of Western Civilization trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um, the first one kind of centering around like the early eighties, like punk scene in LA. And then the second one, uh, the sunset strip, uh, hair metal scene sort of when, when it was kind of on its last rungs and you had all of these, these kids who were trying to ride on the coattails of the Motley Cruz and poisons and whatever. Um, and that actually might be my favorite of the three, funnily enough, even though it's like of all three of them, the music I care the least about. I think Penelope Spears covering, you know, a female director covering like a totally misogynistic, like openly and celebratedly misogynistic music scene um, in sort of a Jane Goodallish sort of way is really interesting. Uh, and then the, the last one, which actually never got a theatrical release, but you can watch it now with on in the DVD set that they released, um, Decline of Western Civilization Part 3, was sort of about the mid-90s gutter punk scene of these homeless kids in L.A. who, you know, beg on the street and, you know, are in some form of addiction starting at age 14, 15. And it is depressing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of documentaries are. Um, <laughs> All right, but let's <laughs> let's move on from that. Um, you had a game. Why don't you describe to me the game? Because you invented it. So I thought it would be funny to do a little game called Don't Give Them Any Ideas. And it's where we take a movie that hasn't been remade or hasn't been remade in a long time. And we, we try to cast the major roles in that movie based off of actors who are, uh, you know, uh, more active today. Uh, so I thought, well, why, what better place to start than Jaws? Uh, as far as I know, there haven't been any 
major remakes of that. There have been, you know, sequels and plenty of knockoffs, but nobody's actually come for the king. Um, so if you were going to remake Jaws, who would you cast in the major roles? And and you said the, the roles that we're going to be casting are going to be uh, Sheriff Brody, his wife Ellen, uh, Hooper, Quint, and the mayor. Yeah, the major leads. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone uh, really cares who we have as Brody's kids. Yeah. <laughs> who, who gives a fuck? Uh, yeah, or the girl who gets eaten at the beginning or whatever. I thought maybe the the uh, mom who slaps uh, Brody, <laughs> but it's such a one and done part. Right. Um, that's a that's a big role to live up to, though. That's a moment. It is. It's yeah. a good moment. Um, okay, so who do, who do you got? Where should we start with this? Oh, well, we could st- we could start with Brody. And of course, this is the role that was originally uh, Roy Scheider. And here's a th- here's an observation I want to make about Jaws when I when I was doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, for as big of a movie as it is, and it's kind of iconic, and everyone you know talks about it and quotes it and blah blah blah, and it's it's a genre film basically. It so naturalistic and all of the actors in it you know mm-hmm. mid 70s all the actors in it do not look like actors no it is it is such a character's act character actors like right like dream uh but i mean it was real this was a harder exercise than i thought it would be and not just because it's like how could they replace roy Scheider? um but it was it was a it was really difficult to think of like who isn't going to be too celebrity e in the yeah. role? Like, who's going to just, like, blend into the Island of Amity? Totally, yeah. I Because there isn't really actors a, like that anymore. I had a, a similar issue. Um, I will say, though, in the 70s, in general, I mean, uh, of course there were some superstar actors. Yeah. But in general, I think people looked a little more normal then. Um, yeah, it was an era where it was that post Hollywood, you know, new exactly. Hollywood era when people was really into the idea of like normal looking, normal acting, naturalistic actors, like exactly. kind of frumpy, even porn back then. Everybody was a little ugly. <laughs> <laughs> if okay, you look at so- like the, the, the back of like any rock album and like, you know, they have the, the rock stars there. They're all probably 22 years old, but they look 35. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I'm constantly shocked that I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm older than this person now. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, Chief Brody, I'll, I'll say mine real fast. And I'll make a, a small argument for it, but uh, let's try not to let this go on for too long. Sure. Um, for my Brody, I'm thinking he's from New York. That's a big part of his character is that he just moved from New York. He's not used to the island. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of introverted, but also masculine. Uh, I have Mark Ruffalo. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like me likey, me likey. Uh, okay. All right. I, should I go next or are you do? Sure. Unless I mean, if there's anything you disagree with, you can you're allowed to say. Um, but no, but, I I think that's a solid choice. I think he uh, um, it's a similar I think role to kind of what he did in um, Zodiac. Sure. So it's it's yeah. very easy for me to sort of like picture it. And I could see him looking and 
feeling awkward on a boat. You know mm. what I mean? Like totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for mine, and I'll do my Brody and my Ellen together. Okay. Um, because I, I definitely like intentionally sort of cast them together um for sheriff brody i picked sterling k brown okay um uh because sheriff brody is he's you know like you said he's from the city uh-huh. uh he is he's kind of a fish out of water he or or, or uh land animal in water literally because he he doesn't really like he's a little nervous about water he's not Right. Super comfortable with it. So I picked a purposefully black actor, you know, because Maine is pretty white. Um, and so there's going to be like an immediate visual cue. Uh, othering. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, I think Sterling K. Brown can play the down to earth family man. Um, he can play, you know, like that's, he's made a huge career out of it on This Is Us, uh, you know, playing the, the good dad. Uh, he's, he's likable. Um, and he's just a, a damn good actor. Yeah. And for Ellen, I cast Regina King um, for similar reasons. I think they would have incredible chemistry together. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, you know. Um, I picked a black actress because, you know, just to show that they are unified um, visually again. Um, But I think that they they would bring that relatability and that down to earthness that we need the Brodies to have. Yeah. And I'll I'll just state my Ellen now because you did yours Um, for my Ellen. I have and this is probably the biggest star. Well, no, not necessarily, but a big star. Um, Jennifer Lopez. Oh, all right. Uh, right. Again, going to the New York thing. Um, she's Puerto Rican and very well, like connected to New York. Um, and would seem, and for the same reason that you stated, I think it would kind of underline that they just moved here. They're not from here. They're still kind Mm. of settling in. Um, maybe they haven't quite made roots yet, have made friends yet, things like that. And I think, you know, she's still kind of getting used to the idea of being around the water, let alone letting their kids swim in shark infested waters. Um, totally. And I think it's a role that you can do a lot with, like you can be a, a, a good actor in, but you can also be supportive. It doesn't, I think having her there isn't going to be too distracting. Totally. Especially given, like, what we've seen her do recently. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Uh, okay. Uh, who, who should we do next? Should we do the mayor? Um, sure. This was, for me, the hardest one. But go ahead. I'll I, let you I, do yours. I agree. I'm actually kind of, I was torn on a few people. Um, and I, my gut is going to go with the first one I thought of because mm-hmm. um, I was originally thinking of him as Hooper, but I think I thought of somebody else who I liked more for Hooper. Um, but I think uh, I, I'm throwing John C. Riley as okay. the mayor um, because he is a known actor that can do a lot with very little. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could, I, you know, the mayor's kind of a comedic role and, and uh, kind of a, you know, he, he's, 
sort of a yeah, heel. So, yeah, yeah. And I think John C. Riley can do that, but also, you know, maintain that relatability. Um, and uh, I don't know. I just, I liked him for, I, I kept thinking of like, largely comedic actors or or comedians Mm -hmm. um for this role just because i think they're the type who could who can really make those scenes pop um and you know can kind of run away with that role which i think the mayor in jaws does like he's such a fucking skis bag Uh, like other people i thought about I, I, maybe I shouldn't say because you're going to tell me who you you picked, but I mostly picked comedians. Like I thought, you know, Adam Sandler would be great, uh, hmm. Bill Burr, Jim Gaffigan. Like, oh, those are all interesting people who like I just think it would be really fun to to give them that like little spotlight moment. Sure, um, mine might be controversial for several reasons, uh, but I was this is my reasoning going into it. Older actor, older part, okay. like maybe even a little bit older than the leads, um, comes from money, like kind of a privileged white Republican type, was probably really attractive when he was younger, but is now sort of aged out of it, mm-hmm. um, and has never had to deal with any kind of adversity in life. And that's why he has big enough balls to wear those ridiculous suits. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, in, totally. You're you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and in this role, I am casting maybe a stunt cast, James Wood. Oh. Mm. Yeah. The man. mayor would totally be a Trump supporter. Yeah. No, that's good. That's hard to argue with. Yeah. Uh, it's, and there's already kind of like, like a little bit of hate, like. In the media now, so he's gonna make he's gonna make him really easy to to make the audience dislike him. I mean, I I am all for James Woods disappearing forever, but he is a good actor. So like, if if we're talking the '90s Jaws remake, mm-hmm. I'm like all in on James Woods. Yeah. Now I'm a little like, oof, that might be a little a little hard to watch, uh, but. I mean, he definitely fits. Yeah. He fits. Right. And he, there's there's kind of a classical actor quality to him. Like, he's, James Wood's sort, sort of from another time, you know? Like, both literally. Yeah, he is. Both literally <laughs> and, and uh, figuratively. Like, he, like, in the way that that, that, that actor um, who played the mayor in the mm. original Jaws is more of a 60s, 50s actor. Um they, you know, sort of ported him into this, like, 70s film. Um, you'd be doing the same with Woods, who's kind of more known as an 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s actor. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I was back and forth on it. I said, ah, is that too weird? Like, And then, I like, every time I thought of somebody else, I kept coming back to him. Uh, horrific as a person. <laughs> oh, probably. <laughs> I, I also thought of a Bob Odenkirk in the part. Um, oh fuck, that's so good! Oh, yeah, that was my comedic actor, but I thought that he was a little too Bob Odenkirk. Uh, and he is a little, but like I don't know, no diss on Bob Odenkirk, but I don't get the I don't get the same like Reagan Republican vibe from him. Yeah, yeah, I get that. 
Um, it's it's probably because you know t- you know his background in sketch comedy too much. Uh, right. Okay, moving uh, on. Who do you who do you have for Hooper? Uh, I did a uh, a um, different racial casting here too for the reasons that you said with Brody uh, um, in this part, and this is maybe potentially the most distracting. Um, I have Donald Glover. Um, oh, okay. Because I, I, and I originally thought of like a few other actors who were a little less comedic, but I do think this role requires some comedy because I yeah, think Richard no, Dreyfus I- is very naturally funny and he kind of comes off as a bit nerdy and nebbishy. And I think mm-hmm. Donald Glover can do that too. Um, but I also think that the, it creates a subtext there that the, there's a reason why this town of mostly white people aren't listening to this scientist who came mm-hmm. in from the city. And uh, I think that could be really interesting, and especially playing off the, the, the tension between him and Quint. And, and he's, he would be a little bit younger than originally cast. So I think yeah, that, that creates a new kind of thing too. Now he'd be like right out of college in this scenario as opposed or right out of grad school or something, which I think actually was the case with Hooper. It was just that weird 70s thing of everyone looking 38. Um, yeah. Cause they mentioned that like he has family money and, and like, it seems like he had, he's kind of uh, lived off of that, you know, like, He's sort of lived off of his privilege right. uh, for, for a while. Um, I definitely thought about that as well for my casting. Um, like I said, I originally thought John C. Riley for kind of the same thing as you is like, we do need, he has to be able to be like comedic, but comedic in a down to earth way. Yeah. Um, but ultimately I thought John C. Riley was just too old uh, yeah. for the part. And that's why I thought, well, let's throw him the, the mayor. Um, so I went kind of a similar way with you. I went with Adam Driver as Hooper because oh, okay. I can, yeah. I think that Hooper does have a comedic sense, but he also has a bit of a temper. Um, yeah. he, you know, he's not very patient uh, with this town for good reason. You know, uh, they're not listening to anything he says. Um, and I also just thought he would look really awkward on the boat at, at the end because he's so big. Um, right. That, and I also just think he's a really he's really good at being very real, and he has some really good comedic timing as well. No, that's true. Did you ever see the movie Midnight Special? I didn't. I haven't yet. Um, I think it's coming to ne- back on Netflix again soon, though, so I'm, I'm going to check He it plays out. a very Hooper-like character in that film. I mean, Midnight Special is, is basically like a love letter to early Spielberg, mm-hmm. um, but he plays a very Hooper-like character. That's all I'll say. Um, oh, interesting. All right. Yeah. Oh, that's... Oh, I didn't know he was in that. That's going to be very interesting uh, for who, who I chose as uh, my... Well... Mm. Again, I was kind of torn between a couple people for Quint, but right. Uh, I guess I'll just say it. Um, there were two actors that I like for Quint. Both of them are sort of leading actors who want, who 
deep down in their bones were actually character actors. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was Michael Shannon. Uh, and the other I'm thinking of is actually the, the one I like more, but I think he might just be too big of a star is uh, Christian Bale. I think oh. if you can, if oh, you can he would lose totally Christian Bale. Oh, exactly. I just think, is he too big of a, a star? I mean, I don't know, but Christian Bale was the one who I thought of first. Cause I just think, uh, he's so good at letting himself be just a character. And that, I mean, that is what Quint is, is he is, you know, he is this, old world pirate yeah <laughs> uh you know living in a modern century and i just think it'd be really fun to see christian bale sort of chew that up yeah plus he's a he's a really good actor like he can do the emotional depths that the character requires as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah i kind of went more of the character actor route on this um something a little bit more of an unknown uh or not an unknown but a lesser known um, specifically for live action work, um, I'm casting as my Quint, uh, Andy Circus. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, totally. Because we've kind of seen him do this role in some regards. Was, he was a very Quint-like character in in Peter Jackson's King Kong movie. Um, mm-hmm. He played He's kind very, of a rough and tumble guy in one of the later Marvel movies. I forget which one. Yeah, he was in uh, Age of Ultron and Black Panther. But yeah, yeah. he. Totally. Uh, I didn't even think of King Kong um, because I try not to. But uh, (laughs) no, that movie's fine. Um, But yeah, he's very similar character. And I think it would be fun to to see Andy Serkis get a role like this where it it actually becomes kind of a highlight. Right. um, Instead of getting lost in the background or the CGI, as it were, because... Man, he's fucking good. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, the idea of just, like, you know, because the rest of it has to do with chemistry, too. How are your leads going to look and act together? And I think when I think of uh, Andy Serkis, Mark Ruffalo, and Donald Glover on a boat, I'm in. I mean, same with me. Sterling K. Brown, Adam Driver, and Christian Bale on a boat. Like, I I would watch either of these (laughs) remakes. (laughs) Uh, but please don't, but don't give them any ideas. But don't actually. Yeah, this is <laughs> yeah. all just a uh, thought experiment. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that was fun. Let's go ahead and get into the reviews uh, before I'm a puddle on the ground here. <laughs> let's Same. let's begin with uh, An American Pickle. This was the uh, direct-to-HBO Max film. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to describe what's going on there? Uh, yeah, so... Uh, Seth Rogen plays immigrant uh, coming to America at the turn of the century. He comes from a very small village in I, I can't remember I can't remember wh- where Poland, it was. Um, I believe. Yeah, yeah uh, but he so he's a Jewish immigrant um, come to the, the New World after the Cossacks destroyed his village, and uh, you know he doesn't doesn't have really anything um but the, you know they comes to america to create a legacy to put down roots uh some places you know the american dream um some yeah. place where he can have a family and and that family can uh prosper there's no cats uh, in america he, 
Yeah, exactly. Oh. Uh, he ends up getting a job at a pit- pickle factory, and due to various uh, shenanigans, ends up falling into a vat of pickles just before it is sealed uh, and the building is condemned. A hundred years later, much like Captain America, finds himself uh, in a modern-day Brooklyn where his only living relative uh, is also played by Seth Rogen. So Seth Rogen playing off of himself, uh, causing an incident which gets him and his descendant arrested, which sets them on a path of rivalry where to to prove his worth he ends up selling pickles that he finds out of the the garbage Um, right he tries to start a pickle empire yeah 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 so this is based on a short story i believe uh by the person who adapted the his own story for the screen uh the writer is uh simon rich and he's the one who wrote the story called Sellout. Uh, and it's supposed to be sort of loosely based on him and his family and like the generational differences and kind of thinking back to, you know, his Jewish heritage and like what the immigrants had to go through for him to have the privileges that he has today and sort of reconciling all that. Um, and this is, I believe, one of the only one of the few films that Seth Rogen is. Uh, I know him and Evan Goldberg produced this, but um, it's not a Seth Rogen film per se. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. have that sort of Apatowian flavor to it as much. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's relatively clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's probably some like uh, risque stuff in here, but nothing like his usual it's, shtick. It's not stoner comedy. It's not yeah. gross-out comedy. There's, uh, it, you know, the, the humor isn't really built on um, right. farts or or weed jokes. And it's, a, generally speaking, a much smaller, more intimate story as well. And I, there's things about it I really like. I really like that the kind of sincerity of it, and I like the the overall the overarching message of grief. You know, a big part of the movie is about um, when this uh, immigrant comes back uh, or is uh, released into the future, or whatever, from the Vata Brine. He realizes all the family he's ever known, including the wife he loved very much, has passed away, and you know. He is a person of faith, and that's very important to him. Seth Rogen is more culturally Jewish and doesn't, and it's more religiously agnostic. So there's sort of a tension there about like how you deal with your heritage and da da da. All of the ideas in the movie, I really like. The actual mm. story and how it progresses, less so. Um, okay. I think it starts off. I'm fine with the magic realist stuff of you know like him. Falling in brine and coming back on like I the high concept stuff I'm fine with I can I can go with it uh, for the sake of what they're trying to do here. Where the movie kind of loses me is when we get into this um, bitter butter battle between him and Seth Rogen and Seth Rogen, and mm-hmm. it becomes um, 
topical in a way that feels distracting. Like they're talking about like, like social media taboos and cancel culture and blah, blah, blah. And it feels like a tangent away from the themes um, and kind of yeah, I, overstated I and dumb. And it, I just felt like there was so much more interesting things you could do with these characters than that. I kind of agree with you. Like, I also felt like that stuff was, it felt kind of shoehorned in. It felt um, padded out. Like, well, like, I don't, I haven't read the short story, but I have a feeling like that's the stuff that got added to make it a movie. I, so I, I agree with you. Like, I, I actually really liked the way they dealt with some of the, um, uh, fantastical realism like i like they kind of they definitely have a sense of humor about it and yeah uh, there's a there's a sense of whimsy to this movie that i i really enjoyed sure and that was the stuff that there's i there's a I folkloric found. feel to some of it yeah like that that was the stuff that i end up like sort of thinking was the funniest was like there's this press conference after he comes out of the brine and there's a scientist who just, there, there, there's like a moment where they're like, yep. And, uh, this is perfectly scientifically plausible. Like, and they just <laughs> yeah. like accept that as fact very quickly. Yeah. Um, so that we can move on. I like that. There's also a, uh, uh, trial scene, which I really enjoyed. Um, uh, with Tim Robinson as the lawyer is, I think, one of the funniest parts of this movie. Um, uh, so like there's overall, I enjoy the tone of this movie. Um, but I, I do agree with you. I feel like, I feel like where I had some problems with was like the pacing and the beats of the movie. Like if you want to do the, the thing with the, I, I don't know. The politics stuff went way too far and too long. And I was like, that's, that's not really what this movie's about. And I think you're also kind of making a bad faith argument. Yeah. Um, like, you know, that people like Donald Trump, are, you know, are cutesy or whatever and just old fashioned when, you know, they're actually very dangerous and, and terrible. Um, you know, so I think there's, there's also a little bit of a, uh, well, maybe we shouldn't. At the very least, our, there's our, sort of a false equivalency going on yeah i mean they never explicitly compare the lead character here to any real world uh no but twitter person but but they make a case of like well that's the way the world used to be so it's okay kind of thing which is i but none of that was enough to uh to lose me like overall i i thought this was a a fun heartfelt comedy um i yeah i do i do agree with you that i think it was a little padded out and and that it uh i i think just like the pacing was a little weird during some parts too where it's like okay well what is this movie actually about is it about him coming to terms with his uh, ancestor or is it about their rivalry like i think that stuff maybe got becomes the centerpiece a little bit more than it should have, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, well, yeah, that's why I think that middle section of the movie is all, it's just purely based on plot. It's a, we need mm. these characters to do something for 40 minutes 
so that we can get back to the themes, which is to me very much about intergenerational, um, you know, reconciling of, of culture versus faith and these and, and grief and these like bigger subjects. And like I said, I think and, all and of that legacy stuff. And family. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, what it is to be the second or third generation immigrant and all of these things. Um, and I think all of that is fascinating and very, very substantive. So then when they create this plot for them, which is just, Exactly. Silliness that doesn't really, it feels so unsubstantive and also. And it doesn't really feel. Distracting away from everything. And it doesn't really feel real either. It feels like. It also feels like they lost confidence in the characters because when it was just Seth Rogen and Seth Rogen, which by the way, he's great in the movie. I totally buy him as two separate people. I don't think about like the camera trickery or anything that went into it. Um. I, I, di- I did a little at first, like when they first meet, it's a little weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I think his performance as both characters is is very, it's very good for for both, and and I think he creates two unique characters. Like I, I very easily got past that. Right, and so I think um, when it was just the two of them in 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 modern day Seth Rogen's apartment, Ben is his character's name, I believe. Um, uh, and they're just, you know, kind of playing off of each other and there's, there's a little bit of like disconnect, but they're also, there's a familial sense there. And I was really intrigued by that. And I thought there was like electricity in those initial scenes. So then when the movie like loses its nerve and says, okay, we got to make them do something. So, uh, he's creating an app and he's doing pickles and that's what the movie's going to be now. And I think you... You can even have those things about their characters still be part of their characters, yes. but to to mechan like the mechanics of that like middle stretch is just so writers well, I, room I think you, comedy one on one stuff. I think you you nailed the problem here. Is is this is really weird, but. I think Seth Rogen has a lot of chemistry with himself. and <laughs> They're good uh, enough characters that they don't need a bunch to do. Exactly. And so the problem, I think, comes when, once we get those characters separated and, and they don't have anything. Because like Ben, uh, Seth Rogen's modern character, um, the, the old, his descendant is Herschel. Um, and the modern version is named Ben. Like Ben doesn't have any friends or family or has has literally nobody outside of Herschel that he can interact with, which is for a story, for a movie that's about characters and, and relationships, becomes a big problem once he you separate him from his only relationship. Right. Uh and and so I think that's why this chunk feels so weird is all of the story suddenly becomes about these external forces because they they don't get to interact with each other for a, a decent stretch of the movie. Um, right. So uh, to to equate it to improv, uh, the thing I you know that I when I teach classes and stuff, the thing that I tell uh, anyone who studies with me is the most important thing is your characters and your relationships. That is number one. Like if you don't have that. You can't build off of anything else. Right. And 
they have the care. He has the characters. They have the relationship. They even have motives they- because Ben wants to. Mm-hmm. He he wants to build this app. He has a lot of stuff. A lot of things um, uh, emotionally tied to the success of this app. And Herschel wants to save this this uh, burial this, plot that has now mm-hmm. been destroyed by a freeway and this uh, billboard and da da da. That's enough. You've so got a movie. What, Let's just, you know, be halfway clever about it and if, and not immediately go to let's make commentary on Twitter. If uh, exactly, if I was if this was an improv scene, the note I would give them would be uh I would say, you know, sure this is, you know, this is good. There's some funny stuff here, but it would be so much more satisfying to see these characters work together. Yes. Because that that's that's where that's where the juice is. That's where uh, that's what this movie's about. You know, uh, uh, Ben is lost until his literal ancestor comes and puts him on the right track. Like, that's a movie. There's enough mm-hmm. right there. Um, so, I, I mean, I agree with you. And, and, but I also don't think that that is enough of the movie to, to totally lose me on it. Like, you know, it's a solid chunk. It's a solid stretch. But I, I liked the characters and I liked... The overall tone of this movie, and I liked the overall. I just liked. Uh, there was a movie we watched recently. I can't remember what it was, um, but it, it, I, I said it just had a vibe that I liked living in. Like I just liked. It, it was very comfortable, mm-hmm. um, and so overall, that's how I felt about this. I felt like it's, it's, it is fun. It is entertaining. I think it could have been elevated. Um, and that makes it frustrating because I think this could have been so much more. Um, but as it is, I still thought it was a solid watch. I still thought it was like nothing like made my eyes roll like sometimes I do, you know, in a Seth Rogen thing. So overall, I still I still enjoyed my experience with this movie and would recommend it more than not. I just wish they had, uh, like you said, kind of had a little more faith. That it that it was working, right? Yeah, I I kind of I feel you to a certain degree. I I think it's made with very uh, well intentioned, and I think that it's uh, it's very interesting. I really love the themes of the movie. I love the characters. I I I think it drops the ball a little too hard for me to like give it a full pass, though. To me, this is like a C plus movie, and. It didn't have to be. It was so close to being more. Um, yeah, that's that's where I'm at with it. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Yeah. Like I said, it didn't. I do agree that it could be more, but I it didn't. It didn't lose me. Um, I'd say I'd give it a. I'd give it a solid B. All right. Like I. I. It was. It's one of the better comedies I've seen in a while, I feel. Like, I don't know. I thought it was genuinely heartfelt and funnier than it wasn't. They thought that they were just making, like, a silly comedy that had some cultural stuff in it. And they ended up with possibly something more. But they're so close to that cutoff of it being more that it just makes the failings all that more prominent. Yeah, yeah. Like if they had committed, if like they're really just going to do a silly comedy about a you know unfrozen caveman lawyer thing, then yeah, you go know, all out and just and then the plot could be whatever. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't know. I still there was still something about it, and I think maybe it's because 
maybe it's because the themes are strong enough and are real enough and and they go back to that like that is where this all ends up yeah uh, it's sandwiched uh, really nice between the best stuff in the movie yeah and and, and, it, and so I th- it's smart enough that it know and you know it's probably because it's all there in the short story um but uh yeah it's it's smart enough to know exactly how to wrap everything up and tie everything together that you don't feel like it's a total waste of time yeah, exactly. So oh, overall, that's why I think it worked for me more than didn't is like, yeah. And even the stuff that is weird, it's not like it's bad. It just feels out of place. It feels like those were jokes written for a different movie. Right. Yeah. That's why it to me, it felt incongruent. Like, oh, okay, so they had to stretch this short story into a feature length film. This is how they decided to do it. Um, all right, well, let's move on then to the streaming homework, which you assigned me last get week. Get ready to get wet with tears. <laughs> We're talking about The Notebook. <laughs> yes, uh, which came out in 2004, um, catapulting the uh, careers of Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's give it to Gosling. Rachel McAdams does. Mm. <laughs> are you? Are you, hey, uh, are you okay? I'm, I'm just, are you delirious? I'm just, no. I don't need to really <laughs> describe what the Notebook's about because everyone has seen it, but us, um, or at least until recently. Uh, but in case for whatever reason you haven't seen it, this is a film based on a book by Nicholas Sparks, of which there have been many. And yeah, but this is the king. This, this is, is the this big is one. the grand. Yeah. Da- this is the Iron Man of Nicholas Sparks movies. Yes. <laughs> It, this is the big one. <laughs> Not the first one. There was the film Message in a Bottle, I believe, was came out before this. Well, I um, mean, if you want to get into it, Daredevil and Spider-Man and X-Men were all before Iron Man. But but you needed <laughs> you, you need Iron Man to, to land your universe. And this kicks off the Nicholas Sparks-averse. Right. Uh, this is definitely what uh, greenlit all of the later Sparks adaptations. Uh and this is directed by Nick Cassavetes, son of John Cassavetes, and it also stars uh, John Cassavetes' wife, um, Gina Rollins, in one of the leads as the oh. future uh, version of Allie, which is the character played by Rachel McAdams, whenever we f- go back into flashback and tell this uh, sprawling love story about two kids on different sides of the tracks. Um, in the South, uh, we have uh, Rachel McAdams, who's uh, rich and successful and going off to college and has a big future. And on the other side, we have um, Ryan Gosling's character, who is kind of more working class and is saving up so that he can rebuild a plantation home and turn it into his own personal mansion. Um and they fall in love as young kids until their family forces them apart. Uh, years and years pass, um, and Rachel McAdams' uh, character, Allie, uh, finds another lover. and Fiancé. A fiancé, yes, played by James Marsden. Something happens that reconnects her with uh, Ryan Gosling, and it's all about, you know, second chances, I guess. So, uh, yeah. Uh, by the way, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I totally believe Rachel McAdams is a young Gina Rollins. 
I don't buy Ryan Gosling as a young James Garner. Like, no, yeah. <laughs> they don't look well, anything alike. <laughs> really, really funny slash weird, and maybe like, I don't even know, maybe like kind of meta or something. Um, there's a scene in at the end of, at the end of the picture when uh, James Garner is like flipping through an old uh, an old picture book, and it shows a young James Garner with a young Jenna Rollins. Um, looking absolutely nothing like Rachel McAdams and and Ryan Gosling. Um, so it would. I thought that was an interesting choice, and I wasn't quite sure what that was going for. But uh, yeah, and maybe well, I think. Big, so there- I guess like one of the big conceits of the movie is that uh, older Allie, played by Jenna Rollins, is uh, has dementia. And she yes. doesn't remember all of this past, so the whole thing is framed um, in this. Uh, uh, I feel yeah. I, so I feel this like narration between James Garner. Out. Well, you know, James Garner, who is reading her from a notebook, their their love story until one day that she re- she remembers, and they're going to have this moment or whatever. Um, so I guess you could theorize that the Ryan Gosling. And Rachel McAdams' version of the characters are the versions that Jenna Rollins is seeing as her, in her head, thinking of them as different people, rather than thinking of them as themselves. Well, I know when it came out, too, like, it's it's kind of a twist. I, I mean, it's not really a twist. It, not as much never, as I thought it was, because that's what I one of the reasons why I never went back to see it is I thought, oh, well, I already yeah. know the whole thing. And now that she like that, she's actually the wife and blah, blah, blah. But they but reveal it, that pretty early on. That's like within the first at least the first hour. Well, they, they reveal uh, they they don't necessarily they build up to James, it, but it's not a twist. But, but they don't necessarily reveal that James Garner is Ryan Gosling. Yeah, they uh, do. You you know you know that Gina Rollins is Rachel McAdams. Like we know that pretty early, but there is still like I mean, it would be very weird if he there there's a chance that this is either James Marsden or some other guy even. See, um, I thought that like, that, he, that it was so obvious that it would have been well, a twist you know, if it was if it was James Marsden. Like I was almost expecting like like a double twist, and then and he was going to be like, that's and that's why I'm telling ending. you the story of your true love, who's not me. <laughs> no, that I mean, I, I think that's because you you're going into this with retrospect. You know, if you were right. a horny teenager in 2006 or, or 2004, 2000, you know, when when. We, if you had seen this when you should have seen this with a date in high school, like y- you might not have, right? You might have been a little bit more fooled by it. Like I think, I think it is a little bit of a his identity is a little bit of a mystery. Um, I mean, anyway, but I do think that unlike the Sixth Sense, um, this movie doesn't doesn't rely on the the twist or the the reveal to work. Um, because you know, ultimately, this is a romance movie. This is, yeah, this is about a, a love of of the ages. Um, so you know, whether or not you saw the ending coming or or whatever, if that works as a reveal, it kind of does doesn't matter because you, you're either with the characters up to that point or you're not. 
So yeah, and I, ultimately, I actually you. don't think I actually don't think that the framing device is that uh, contingent on enjoying the film. Um, it is to a certain extent, especially towards the end. But um, it's, it's kind of like the, the the Princess Bride, right? Like it's definitely a part right. of the movie. It, it influences the way we're seeing these characters, but ultimately, you know, the the story is about yeah. Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling. Yeah. So my question to you: Did this movie make you cry? No. No, it didn't. Um, <laughs> you heartless son of a bitch. <laughs> I didn't think it was particularly sad, but I do. I, I will say that it is maybe, maybe if you're somebody of a certain age or a certain proclivity who thinks that this is just too syrupy and too sappy to to get into, um, maybe you've seen some of the later Nicholas Sparks, like Josh Duhamel joints. Um, yeah, yeah. Then you would be less is, inclined I, to to see this, uh, especially some of the later, like goofier ones where people are actually ghosts and things like that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, th- uh, I, I think this I, is this yeah, is I, made very earnestly. It's 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 very intentionally old fashioned. It it feels like a kind of like a fifties melodrama to a certain extent. It's definitely going for that. Um, I think that the leads. Here, obviously, Rachel McAdams and, and Ryan Gosling are 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 very good, um, and they're kind of playing it broad. The whole movie is pretty broad. Mm-hmm. Um, that is part of the melodrama as a genre is allowed to be melodramatic. And uh, there's like that war scene when the, he, he's him and his friend are like running through. I guess World oh my War God. II or something. I thought that was, and it looks be like much... con- controlled demolition, <laughs> like very obviously. Um, I thought there was going to be a much bigger part of the story. It's literally just like I went to war, right. my friend died, and then I was back, <laughs> and I was sad. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I think ultimately, I think as a love story, as a character piece, um, uh, you know, just as a sort of sepia tone, dreamy. Uh, melodrama it's perfectly acceptable and i get it i totally understand why this movie totally worked for people back when it came out and well yeah i mean it's it's this is a genre piece the same as a cowboy movie is a genre movie the same as uh you know a pirate movie is a is a genre like a a spy noir like this is a genre romance right that is you know like it's we a little... have the, the formula. Let's let's play those beats, um, right? And, so and like, I'm not I'm not I'm not knocking it for for it being uh, sentimental. No, no, no. And I what, and what I, I think that it's fine. It's perfectly fine that it's sentimental because that's the the ultimate goal of the film. That's what I'm saying. Is is as a if we're looking at as a genre piece, I think it it works really well. Like, yeah, you might not be you might not be a fan of the genre. That's you know your own preference um but if you are i think this totally works because uh, you know like the 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 characters aren't are three-dimensional enough uh and the acting is good enough like you know ryan gosling and rachel mcadams are really charming and lovable and yeah and, and you root uh, for them and you want to see them together and they have obvious screen screen 
uh, chemistry, which is what sold this entire thing. Um, mm. You know, that that one sheet of them kissing in the rain is like, you know, embedded in people's minds forever. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's just as iconic as like Spider-Man's upside, upside down, down kiss. kiss. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I, I get it. Like, I totally understand why 18-year-old girls in, in 2004 were head over heels over this movie. My issue with it as a film is it's pretty simplistic. Not a ton happens if you're, you know, if you're really going um, through the beats of the film. Um, It doesn't feel like there's much of a journey between them in the past and them reconnecting. And then like, you know, the stakes to that are keeping them separated are pretty easily resolved. And it's mostly has to do with just like coming to terms with your station in life or whatever. Um, I think there are films that approach basically the same story in a more emotionally and cinematically satisfying way. I'm thinking specifically Titanic and I'm thinking specifically Mm -hmm. Forrest Gump. I think both of those movies pretty much have the same love story and a more of a cinematic um, narrative to to uh, frame it. Yeah. Which I is mean, why I'm I, two minds I, of the framing device, because part of me thinks the framing device is a little too like handholdy and corny. Um, but then I'm also like, if you, that wasn't there, then you'd, it would really feel simple. Yeah. Uh, no, I, yes, I do agree with you. I actually don't mind the framing device at all. I think, uh, uh, y- you know, it is, it is a little schmaltzy, but again, y- you know, I think that, um, that those actors, even though fucking James Garner looks nothing like Ryan Gosling, <laughs> like I think they're they're also treating the material with with yeah. enough respect. Like nobody's phoning it in. There's you know like they're still trying to sell that this is a believable love story, and you know like the 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 subplot about her having dementia is you know is is pretty sad and and affecting. Um, yeah, so I think. Uh, you know, you don't want to totally discount that. Like, it is part of the movie. But, um, yeah, I mean, sure, there are movies that work better. But I think I think that this, you know, if you're a fan of Forrest Gump, if you're a fan of Titanic, I think that there's a lot here for you to like as well. Um, so, I, you know, I can't totally dismiss it. I, I actually found myself getting you know, a lot more sucked into it than I sort of, uh, realized. Like, you know, I tried to not let myself, I tried not to hold my, hold this movie at arm's length because of its reputation and because of all that. And, you know, like, I don't know. I, my only real criticism with the movie is I think it should have ended five minutes earlier. I agree. Um, uh, there's a there's a I think there's a there perfect is, ending point in this film that I think would have been a lot more and poignant, it keeps and then it going. it keeps going for about two or three more scenes. I didn't need, but I'm thinking of the terms of like you know nihilistic. <laughs> no, not even nihilistic. Like uh, you know, I think it. Actually, well, I'm thinking of it more, I guess, in I like tragedy actually, terms as a, as opposed to like love story. And I get that the the audience for this film but, wants the love story ending, not the tragedy ending. <laughs> But here's the thing. I think 
I think that the 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 obvious ending, and there's like literally a blackout and a fade in. Moment. Yeah, it was a so, perfect. You know, I was expecting to see about. credits, and I was like, "Whoa, that ended on a down note, but ballsy." And then it kept going. I'm like, "Oh, okay, well, of but, course, I wasn't going to do that." But I actually, yeah, I mean, it, the, the the last like two minutes is very like you can feel Nicholas Sparks all over that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it that is. That is what came out of this movie. That is the legacy of this movie, and it's unfortunate <laughs> because those are the types of movies that kept getting made after this. But uh, I, here's the thing. I think the other ending is better, not because it's darker, but because it it cements the theme of the movie more. Uh, you know, like, the whole fucking point of this movie is that, that uh, you know, she has dementia, but he's willing to use his whole day you know, he's willing to do everything he can for just the chance of seeing the person he fell in love with again. Right. Right. And and I think that is that is cemented with the ending that should have happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it ends in, in a horror moment of like her forgetting who she is like in the middle of of their like romantic reunion. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets like like two minutes with her. Before she reverts back. And like that to me solidifies this love story. It's also tonally very different from the rest of the film in that scene. It's like very real. And they're giving these incredible performances, like both him and and both James Garner and Jenna Rollins are giving these. And it, it gets very chaotic and like very down to earth. And it almost kind of like underlines the fantasy aspect of the rest of the film like this is all the sepia tone gauzy memory of their love but this is the reality of what of what their life is now and i again that's me bringing my neuroses to the film um but that but that's not neuroses that that that's a better ending because it plays off of what's already established it plays off of the themes that are there so that's not just you being nihilistic and you being like (laughs) you preferring the the dark energy Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, because it it's a better ending yeah it serves a better it actually tells a better story and more emotionally impactful so my recommendation is just turn it off at that point like the (laughs) And the rest is sort of an epilogue, which is fine. It's whatever. Yeah. Like you said, you know, the 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 money is paying for that last two minutes. But really, I think if 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 the movie cuts off where the story naturally ends, it it actually serves the movie better, even if it's sad. Right. Um, but yeah, well, that's the Notebook. <laughs> um, Overall, I-, I enjoyed it. I I I was a little skeptical, but. Overall, I was like, you know, it's pretty charming and harmless. Yeah, if you've never seen it before, especially given, like, the careers of everyone involved now um, and where they've gone since, it's kind of interesting to look at. I mean, obviously, Ryan Gosling had been in some stuff before this. He was in, like, The Believer which and... Um, the Mickey uh, Mouse Club. The Mickey Mouse... <laughs> he was in The Mickey Mouse Club, and he was in a couple seasons of Young Hercules, but... Um, Wait, was he? Yeah. Was he really? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, outside of that, like, you can see, like, oh, yeah, it's obvious this guy was going to be, like, a superstar uh, after this movie. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's the same with Rachel McAdams. I mean, she was in Mean Girls before this, which was a pretty big hit. But this was this allowed her to, like, step away from this, you know, kind of hard to, like, 
character that she could have easily just been written as like the bitch mm-hmm. for the rest of her career. And she totally. was sm- very smart to do this movie and become the girl next door. And, and, uh, man, uh, I mean, they both have aged like fine wine. Like we just saw Rachel McAdams in Eurovision. Right. And she looks the fucking same, like a little less baby faced, but. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that. Holy fuck, I'm looking at pictures of young Hercules. <laughs> what is happening with his hair? He looks like Nicolas Cage! What? It was like 98 what? or something. That's what, what happened. What is this? Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. I want to say he was... watch every episode. I want to say... Hercules. He was also in the, uh, the episode of Goosebumps, the television series, the Say Cheese and Die episode. What? Oh, shut the <laughs> All right. And for the next episode, we're going to do that documentary that uh, Ashley had suggested many years ago, Dear Zachary, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Uh, really looking forward to being real upset. If anybody has anything to say about any of the topics we talked about on this episode or past, you can uh, contact us at our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on our social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod. Um, you can follow me individually on Twitter at VCCassidy, and you can follow me on Instagram as well under VCCassidy, where I'm mostly just showing my record collection. Um, and... Uh, if you are a fan of the podcast and you've been listening for a while, but you have not left us a review on iTunes or Stitcher radio, please do so go over there, leave us a one sentence and a five star rating. We'd love that. Um, and also if you are already hanging out at the MacGuffin's webpage, listening to this podcast right now, you might as well click around and read the other articles and reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin staff. Yeah. Do it. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can also follow my art account on Instagram, um, where I do, you know, like comic book style ink drawings at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Mm-hmm. You've been a lot more active on that lately. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I still do other stuffs, but <laughs> mostly. All right. Well, I think that's gonna be it for the show then. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? (laughs) Bye. Have you seen that meme? No. Oh, it's good. Look it up.